All right, speaking of it's complicated, will you please stand up? That's not the complicated part. Let's all read this together. Let's all read this with a very, very good amount of volume and a good amount of enthusiasm as if it's a 930 service. We could do this, all right, ready? On the count of three, one, two, three. The text for today is... Okay, that's all that we're studying today. All that we're studying today is... If you forget halfway through the sermon, just look at your hand. You've got five fingers, okay? Say it one more time. Awesome. That's the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We are focusing in on the very first verse of the Bible that we have, comp that the Bible as it's been compiled right now. It's uh, most likely not the first verse ever written. Most likely that was Job, written five or six hundred years prior uh, to, to Moses penning uh, the Pentateuch, which we find Genesis through, Genesis, the first five books of the Bible in the Old Testament. But this is the first verse of the Bible as we've got created, and the first book of the Bible that showcases the creation account. In the beginning, God created. And this, the complicated thing about this statement is that it seems to step into the battle lines that we have allotted ourselves, which is science and faith, and asking the question, are they enemies? Um, and the reason that this is a thing, and the, re the reason that this is even a, a thing that we're even looking at, is because this is the perceived reality, both by Christians and non-Christians. Just a couple years back in the UK, they uh, did a survey of adult individuals and their perspective on Christians. Wouldn't you love to know what they thought? Like, they were like, what, what adjectives come to mind when you think of Christians? What ad adjectives do you think that they said? Love, yeah, not that. Judgmental. 34% judgmental. It gets better. <laughs> Hypocritical. And for us, some of you are like, that's just not fair. I've never met a Christian like that. After I looked in the mirror. Judgmental. Hypocritical. But it, uh, the third thing is the thing that actually is of note. 34% judgmental. 33% said that they're hypocritical. And 30% said not compatible with what? Science, and that ain't new. This is something that's been as old as, well, really the church talking about these things. If you go back to the 1600s, you've got Galileo getting put under house arrest for the rest of his career because his teachings didn't line up with the teachings of the church. Uh, if you fast forward all the way up to ch your childhood for many of you, Bill Nye the science guy who had some great stuff to say and great stuff to teach. But he said that it, for parents who teach the, what Scripture has to say or the teaching of the church with regard to creation— that for a parent, that's irresponsible to teach that. His, his homeboy and hero, Richard Dawkins, um, said it's child abuse to teach creationism to kids. And so this is, again, something that's not something that's old. It's something that's new. And what Dawkins has really perfected, along with several other new atheists in the beginning of the 2000s, is to really pit two different categories of those who are intelligent on the science side, and clearly most, most scientists do not believe in God, and those who are blind faith, fairy tale believing Christians or other, some other world religion. And so it really has gone from, gone from some type of pursuit of truth in, in regard to science and, and, and investigation to a belief system. And to just draw the lines even further, we see it showing up even in t-shirts. If you're looking for a t-shirt to wear to tick off grandma at Easter, just wear this. I believe in science. You can believe whatever you want to believe. You're God, whatever. I believe in science. And furthermore, science really doesn't care what you believe. Grandma will love that because this is, again, this, it's the deepening of this divide. You're on one camp or the other, one side or the other. If you're in the realm of the scientific community as a person who's taking your education serious, you might find the same thing. Uh, this, uh, Thomas, a uh, pre-med student, said this. 
My scientific training makes it difficult, if not impossible, to accept the teachings of Christianity. As a believer in evolution, I cannot accept the Bible's pre-scientific accounts of the origin of life. Just this past week, um, this, these are two people that you may be familiar with, maybe you're not. Um, Rhett and Link, hilarious. These guys have been just making phenomenally hilarious content for years. But you may not know, they're, they're on Good Mythical Morning. They've got a podcast. They've got a YouTube channel. Hilarious. They, w- their origin story was they grew up together, went to church together, were in small groups together, led small groups together. Um, uh, uh, they got married around the same time to these to people that were friends. They, they both were on staff at uh, Campus Crusade for Christ after college. Um, deeply, deeply uh, faith-based. And this past week on their podcast, um, Rhett, the guy who's on the left there, laid out in an hour and a half the 15-year deconstruction of his faith, leading to a place where he no longer calls himself a Christian or affirms the divinity of Jesus. I got to tell you, that broke my heart. I don't know why. I don't, I've never met these guys. I rarely look at their stuff. When I do, I laugh, but I mean, I rarely look at their stuff. But it just broke my heart because, probably because I was looking at this weekend. And I realized that when it comes down to it, what, what Rhett cites as the thing that dissolved his faith, the thing that, that broke that apart, was nothing more than science. Like, that was the thing. Science versus faith. It is one of those things that we have, we have artificially allowed to become these two camps, these two things. And I got to say that there's people within the scientific community who are responsible for that, and there are Christians who are responsible for that as well. Growing up, I, um, I remember my parents never told me this. My Sunday school teachers never told me this. I never was around anyone who explicitly said it. But I grew up with this perspective that at some point in my high school career, if not college career, there was going to be some scientist like w- lurking behind like some alleyway. And he was just going to jump me. And he's just going to jump me and he's going to be in his lab coat and like deal me a dime bag of evolution. And there goes my faith right there. I was just going to be like decimated. I, I, I lived with this suspicion that, man, I just, for all the people who believe in evolution, I just wish they knew Jesus. And, 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 and w- when I was asked by different people, like, can you believe in evolution and be a Christian? I, my predominant thought, I'll be honest, was like, yeah, probably not. <laughs> that was kind of like the going thing. Science versus faith, this was something that, even though it wasn't explicitly said by the people in my tribe or circle, it was implicitly lived out. And that's unfortunate. Because it's unnecessary. It's absolutely unnecessary for us to to make these two divides or to allow these divides to perpetrate themselves. Because honestly, when, before all facts and figures were debated, in the beginning, God created. You got that? Okay. Before facts and figures were debated, the foundation that we're coming into this is not our findings, which science is humble enough to say are constantly evolving. Our understanding is constantly getting more refined. Before facts and figures were debated, there was another reality at play. In the beginning, God created. And as a Christian, that five-part, that five-part reality is something that we can actually step into and live out as our foundation. And the way we do that first off is this, to distinguish the different roles faith and science play in our understanding of truth. To realize that these are, that, that, that it's not like which is true, science or faith, that actually they're both aiming to solve perspective and understanding and truth from different angles. Science, the purpose is the how. This is something that has come up through trial and error and understanding. Faith and philosophy is trying to understand the why behind it. 
Like, what is the deeper meaning behind it? I've never gone to the Bible. I've never searched, like, when my truck breaks down, I'm never looking in the book of Lamentations for an answer. You know why? Because someone wrote a manual that some guys that I can't read, but people that are, are mechanics can read and understand, and they can actually figure out, because they can figure out the how. This is how an engine works. This is how an alternator works. Th these, are, these are hows. Faith and philosophy understand the why, and within our faith, we even understand something deeper than that, the who. Every world religion is trying to understand the why and perhaps even the who behind the how. But science's role and its function is important in discovering the how. The problem comes, and we'll just swing over to the scientific community first off. A problem that within the scientific community that they have is not being honest with the biases or the philosophy they're imposing upon their findings. To allow the right side of the two columns to swing over into the findings of the first, to actually allow those, those initial findings to say, science is the only place that we can understand any truth, and we're going to allow that to help us understand even things that science really isn't capable of investigating, the why or the who. Back to uh, Dawkins, the evolutionary biologist um, that looks at teaching that God created all of this as, as child abuse, he said, although atheism, and I got to say, he doesn't represent he doesn't represent evolutionists or atheists very well. He's, he's, he kind of rolls like a jerk, and a lot of atheists would agree with that. But he says, although atheism might have been logically tenable before Darwin, Darwin made it possible to intellectually, to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Now, that's something that, that even atheists don't agree with, though. Even evolutionary biologist atheists don't agree with that. Uh, a guy, um, Jay Gould from Harvard, he's the, the evolutionist there. He says, either half of my colleagues are enormously stupid, or else the science of Darwinism is fully compatible with conventional religious beliefs and equally compatible with atheism. In other words, Dawkins is wrong. There's not a majority of scientists that have looked at faith in the eye and with their findings say that this is no longer tenable to be a scientist. Just the opposite. There's actually findings that 50 to 60% of scientists hold to a faith. Not all of them are Christians. But 50 to 60% look at their findings within science not as incompatible with the, with the reality of their faith. And actually, that is on the increase, not the decrease. When we impose, without being honest or open about it, phil philosophical perspectives upon scientific findings, we do some really weird stuff. Now, Christians do this too. But when, when we look at it from a vantage point of deleting out of the equation the foundation of in the beginning God created, we come with some unfortunate conclusions. One, that nothing produced everything. Non-life produces life. Randomness produces fine-tuning, chaos produces information, unconsciousness produces consciousness, and non-reason produces reason. When we delete out, in the beginning God created, we all of a sudden have a very difficult problem that science can't adequately solve, which is, how did this happen? That we're, the deeper we get, the more smart we get, the, the depth of science goes more and more deep and more findings we have, the more we're finding fine-tuning, intelligence, and design. But we are still holding to the fact that we don't have an intellectual, philosophical, or faith-based understanding of helping us understand why that could possibly be. And so we have to make statements like this. And on top of that, it bleeds even further. Um, many of you have read uh, The Origin of the Species. And if you haven't, I encourage you to do so. Chuck Darwin, genius. This guy started making findings in his 20s. If you ever felt like you're never going to amount to nothing, and you're not, never going to amount to anything, and you're in your 20s, like, my life is just going to be purposeless. You should look at Charles Darwin. He was coming up with stuff in his 20s that's just crazy. And people still look at this guy as a rock star. So there's hope for you. But Charles Darwin, when he comes up with all this stuff, all these findings in the origin of the species, what 
he adequately did was to just give the findings. People took the findings and they actually allowed that to bleed into philosophical and faith-based assumptions based on those physical understandings. One of them, I mean, this book came out when slavery was alive and well in the United States. It was no longer in the UK, but racism was still at an all-time high. One of the reasons why the origin of the species kicked off in such fervor in the UK was that the, the actual byline that we have on our books now, are, it was not the original byline that he wrote onto the book. The, for the first 12 years of its publication, the origin of the species, the full title was this, the origin of the species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Darwin allowed his findings was scrubbed out of, of a beginner to say, if everything has just happenstanced, randomly mutated, le leading to certain types of developments, there is no dignity in humanity or, or special or something valuable. Really, all it is is seeing how the strongest can survive. Which actually, the, if you're looking for application, how do we make our race the strongest? Or which races are the strongest? In the UK, they're able to, and the UK at the time was very white, they're able to look around and say, well, we kind of know who the smartest race is, right? I mean, let's, it's, all, it's the white people, right? I mean, we're the people that are most civilized. Look around the world. We're the most civilized. We're the most, I mean, we are the ones that really should be the ones to carry the baton into the next echelon and epoch. And people picked up on that. And whether or not Darwin was you know, tipping his hat philosophically or not, people picked up on that. And as it got into the early 1900s, U.S. gets rid of slavery, but racism is still alive and well. And in that period of time, they're asking questions like, okay, still, we understand, even though we're not going to own people, we can still look at people and qualitatively evaluate where they land on the most fit to survive. And so eugenics gets launched in the early 1900s, a group, a group of scientists who are trying to evaluate who should be the ones to procreate. Who should be the ones allowed to continue to take us into the next generation? And they would make lists of people that were not straight enough, mentally capable enough, or white enough, and did everything they could to mitigate those populations from growing. And that's not just early, in the early 1900s. Um, I, I've shared this before, but um, Dawkins, who is uh, like active on Twitter, if, if you're active on Twitter, or you know people that are active on, on Twitter, that's something that you should start, start to suspect that person. But he's active on Twitter. And one of the things that he tweets out, uh, or he, he just, people like ask him questions about life and science and everything else. And someone said, I've got a friend who's got a child, um, or she, she's pregnant with a child with Down syndrome. And I just, man, I, I don't know how I would respond to that if the doctors told me that I was going to have a child with Down syndrome. Well, Richard Dawkins had a very perfectly logical response. Abort it and try again. It would be immoral to bring it into the world if you had the choice. Not he or she, it would be immoral to bring it into the world if you had the choice. Why? Because, I mean, again, we know, what, we know how life is supposed to be. We're the survival, the fittest races are, should be surviving. It would be immoral. Now, this ticked a lot of people off. And not just Christians, because I don't think they were on Twitter yet, but this ticked a lot of people off that were actually atheists. They were like, how could you say that? Like, that is, that's monstrous. How dare you say that? Within the Down syndrome community, you're like, are you, you're saying that my child shouldn't have survived because they're like a liability for us to continue the evolutionary process of, of, of life? Is that what you're saying? And he responds back with perfect Dawkins um, candor and tact when he said, listen, do you understand? This is the implication of what we believe. If you are a naturalist and if you actually believe the teachings of Darwin, this is the absolute and honest and natural 
reality that you would, this is the choice that anyone would make if you actually believe Darwin. Why? It's not just scientific findings. He's imposing upon it the philosophy. Without a beginner, there is no, there's nothing within human, humanity that makes us unique in the image of God or what have you. As Christians, you want to uncomplicate this issue. Distinguish the different roles faith and science play in our understanding of truth. Understand that they are different. And, that if, if, and then if you're going to impose a philosophy upon the other, be honest about it. But, th but then the second thing comes to the reality of how do we as Christians then find truth in Scripture? Is this just a holy book that we shouldn't take seriously? Or is there, this actually contain truth? Is this truth? Is this something that is actually useful for us, teachable, so that we can cause us to, to grow closer to God or not? Or is it just like an imperfect book that we should just put on the shelf and uh, pick up or, or study here and there? And that leads us to the second action point, which is to discover how to read God's word. Not literally, but literately. Read God's word literally. One of the things that, that um, when you, jumping back to Galileo, the thing that he got busted for was that he uh, proposed the concept that the earth was heliocentric in, in, in rotation rather than geocentric. That the universe, or our solar system at least, was heliocentric, not geocentric. Geocentric is what the church believed. The church believed that if we're the apple of God's eye, if we're the image, created in the image of God, we're the centerpiece of his creation. And obviously we would understand that. I mean, we are the centerpiece of God's creation, of course. And so the, the idea is that everything in the universe and solar system specifically revolved around the earth, geocentric. Galileo's like, uh-uh, I don't see it. We're heliocentric. We actually rotate around the sun. And that was looked at as major blasphemy and to take a low view of scripture. And Galileo's like, why would you even say that? And the church bounces back at his, um, at his trial in 1616. They said, Look, you look at Psalm 93, 1 to 2. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is what? Firmly established. It will not be what? How can you say rotation? How can you say, like, re revolve? It can't be moved. Scripture says this. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. Furthermore, you go to Ecclesiastes 1, 5. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. Galileo, you are absolutely obtuse, and you are a heretic if you believe that Scripture is inaccurate. And Galileo is saying, you're misreading the Scripture, which brings us to the fact that we have to come to Scripture literally, because I, I would, we would agree that we're rot rotating, right? That we're revolving around the sun? Okay, we're, we would be heretics in the 1600s if that was us. And yet now we look back on that and go, no, that's actually, that's, that's not incom incompatible with Scripture. Why? Because we understand the book of Psalms is what? It's a book of what? Poetry. When we read the Bible literally, we recognize the different genres. There's parts of the Bible that are historic, that, that are actually accounting for history. This is what happened. This is the play-by-play. -play. This is who won this battle. This is what took place here. The, the Gospels are a historic section of Scripture. So there's history in this book. But there's also poetry. You have in Lamentations, you have, you have in the book of Psalms. You have other books that, in, that, are, that are actually historic, but they have poetic components in it. You have aspects of the Bible that are instructional. After the Gospels, you have the letters to the churches, telling churches how we're supposed to roll as Christians, how we're supposed to live. That's instructional, and there's parts of the Bible that are prophetic. 
They're kind of a weird combo pack of, of saying this is something that is going to happen in future history. It's going to happen in the future, but we don't really have all of the details. God's just given us kind of the, the rough edges of it, symbol to help us understand. So here's some symbolic stuff in the future that we're not going to fully understand until we get there, but it's prophecy. The Bible was never intended to be read from start to finish as history. That's ripping the genres that God intended it to have out of it. The Bible was not intended to be read from start to finish as poetry, like it's all just allegorical. It's not really true. It just kind of contains truth. No, that, that's poetic. There's parts of the Bible that are poetic, but the whole thing was not intended to be read that way. Instructional and prophetic the same. We have to be the people that are reading the Bible literally. We do that, and we understand what God is intending in those passages. And the author who God inspired the words of to, in those passages we understand exactly what he's coming from. And we see this in Scripture, because sometimes Scripture is a little bit confusing. And this causes us as Christians to have to be humble. Because there's sometimes there's historic and poetic realities side by side. Here's a couple of ex possible examples. One that we know to be an example is Judges 4 and 5. In Judges 4, you've got Deborah, and Deborah's like taking on this awesome battle against this Sisera, this individual named Sisera. And man, they do battle and they win. It's huge, it's epic. You have chapter 4 being the historic accounting of what takes place. And then you get to chapter 5. And chapter 5 is a song. It's a poem. How do we know it's a poem? Because of the way that it's written, and because of some of the, the ways that it describes the reality of what we just saw in chapter 4. It says things like, and the stars came from the heavens and fought for us. Literally? Like you're telling me that from other solar systems, glowing balls of fire entered our Earth's atmosphere and decimated our enemy. Is that what the author of Judges is trying to get across? Does anyone believe that? Okay, good. I'm, I, for a second, I, I was looking at something like, maybe it is. <laughs> no! That was never the point. And so if someone comes to that passage and says, aha, I'm supposed to take all of Scripture literally. I'm supposed to understand it as everything is on face value. Stars <laughs> came down, and that's what actually fought Sisera, which is so goofy because we just learned in chapter 4 what actually happened. He's being poetic. The author is being poetic on purpose. And if you read it anything else in that passage, you're misreading, mishandling Scripture. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, there's some people that actually look at that similarly. That one of those chapters is the historic accounting. Chapter 1 is kind of the historic accounting, and chapter 2 is, is actually the poetic play-by-play -play of, of how to describe it differently. Because you have two different creation accounts that seem to contradict in some way if you're looking at them both literally. However, if you recognize that Scripture has within it the capacity to speak historically and then poetically, you understand that this is also possible. As Christians, we need... We need to have a perspective that can come to Scripture that way and be able to read it literally. Third thing is we need to develop humble conclusions on scientific findings through the lens of your faith. Recognizing that all of us, when we look at science and we have our faith and our philosophy, we, every person that's coming to scientific findings is imposing a bias, a foundation. There is no God, therefore this makes sense. There is a God, therefore this makes sense. If you're a follower of Jesus, the, the foundation you come to is actually one where you're recognizing that this is not supposed to be just put on the shelf and you're just supposed to have your science. This is actually something that actually helps understand, help you understand the why and the who behind the how. And here's a couple of ways that Christians have attacked 
the, the most controversial element of science at this point, I would say still to this day, is creation. The same thing that Darwin went head-to-head -head with with some of the church, the same thing that Galileo didn't go head-to-head -head with but would have had he gotten later, is this, is the different views of creation. Now, here's three that, that I think make sense, that, that people, um, different Christians hold to these. Some Christians hold to young earth creationism. And basically, in a nutshell, the universe, including all life on earth, was created as a mature and fully finalized creation in six literal 24-hour days, embedded with the capacity of adaptation and microevolutionary development. So microevolution, so there's adaptation, like one, one animal, you know, like a, a wolf, or a wolf can turn into a dog and different sets of dogs. It wasn't like you had like a whole litter of dogs, of different kinds of dogs in the garden. They, they would believe that microevolution is possible. But they don't believe that, like, you know, you start out as a tadpole and then eventually you're serving someone at Taco Bell. Okay, that's something that they don't buy that. They, they actually, um, um, many young earth creationists look at this through the lens of when we look and we see the earth and we see what seems to be billions of years old or we look at the universe and we see what appears to be 73 trillion years of age, we're actually looking at what God did when we, and we can see a microcosm of that in Adam and Eve. He didn't create a baby that had a chance to grow up. He created a mature human being. He created a mature Adam. Adam looked to be, I don't know, 27, 30 years old, but he was seconds old. That's all he was. So a micro amount of time, and yet he appeared to be fully mature. It makes sense to many, and makes sense to me, that God could totally have created a world that appears the same. He's creating a finished product. And, what, and, what, and if you evaluate it, it would appear to be older, but it actually is created in six literal days. People that hold to this say the earth is somewhere between six and 10,000 years of age, created mature, possibly looking millions of years old, but actually is six to 10. Um, Martin Luther, our, our, one of the founding fathers of, of in, within the Reformation, um, said that the earth was probably 6,000 years old. John Calvin wanted to do him one better and said, nope, it's five, like they're having a contest to see how young they could get, but that's kind of this group. Now listen, um, if you're looking to pursue this more, I want to challenge you to investigate this. Um, in your notes, um, Ken Ham is probably one of the, the people that has got the most work done on this in a collective uh, way. And you can go to answersingenesis.org to find out more stuff on that. But the thing is, is that, that these guys, they love Jesus. They believe, they have a high view of Scripture. They believe that this is God's Word. But do you think that if, when they enter into eternity, if Ken Ham, let's just say, he, he sees Jesus and, he, and he's interacting with Jesus for the first time, he's blowing away, just blowing away, and then Jesus says, Ken, here's the deal, man. It wasn't six literal days. That was poetic, man. Do you think Ken Ham's going to go like, for real? You have just royally disappointed me, Jesus. You think he's going to do that? No. You know why? Because at the end of the day, before facts and figures were debated, Ken Ham knows that in the beginning it was God who created. He will not be disappointed. That brings us to the second group of people, um, the theistic evolution creationist bunch. These are people that, that believe that God creates all living things through Christ, including human beings, in his image, making use of intentionally designed, actively sustained natural processes that scientists today study as evolution. These guys do believe in the tadpole to Taco Bell attender. Okay, they're the macro evolutionists. Um, and, but they look at it through the lens of the fact that that's not incompatible with Scripture. It's not even incompatible from their vantage point with Genesis 1 and 2. Um, I put in your notes some key people that are in this. Um, one of them is Tim Keller in, the in the, his book, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. Chapter 6 really focuses in on that. He would be in this camp. Francis Collins, who is the head of the Human Genome uh, Project, or was head of the Human Genome Project. He's the guy who wrote this book, phenomenal book called The Language of God. 
he mapped out DNA, and he was given this huge award by President Clinton as a result of that. If you've ever gotten on to 23andMe, you can thank Francis Collins because of it, because he mapped out the human DNA genome. He was just a phenomenally brilliant guy. He was a guy who grew up as a Lutheran and then ditched his faith because he found it not tenable with science until he became a scientist. And the deeper he got into science, the more his faith grew, and he actually became an evangelical follower of Jesus because of the fact of those findings. So he's, he would be in this camp. Dr. Hugh Ross, who was an um, astrophysicist and, uh, and um, an astronaut, um, is a guy who is a, a strong follower of Jesus. His book, um, Reasons to Believe, is in this camp as well. He's actually, he's a trip because he's like, actually, I don't look at Genesis 1 and 2 as poetic. I look at it as literal, but I literally take the words, uh, the word for day, first day, yom, in Hebrew, it could be translated into four different words literally. One of them is 24-hour day, and that's, uh, uh, there's reason for people to believe it was actual 24-hour day, but it also could be describing an epoch, as in massive section of time, thousands of years, billions of years, trillions, whatever. It, it, it's something that is just describing a section of time, and it could be large or small. And he would put into, he actually showcases how day one through six is an actual representation of everything, through, including the, 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 um, the Cambrian explosion, everything else, it all fits in, and, and he has th that kind of fleshed out. And so this is where they would land. They would land in that. Now, these guys, they believe in Jesus. They have a high view of Scripture. They love God. But at the end of the day, if they got to eternity and they see Jesus, and Jesus is like, you guys totally missed what I was saying. When I said yom, I meant yom. I'm talking day, 24-hour day. You guys were totally wrong. Do you think that, that, that any one of these guys, you think Tim Keller or Hugh Ross are going to be like, are you serious? I've wasted my whole life. I'm so disappointed. Do you think you're going to be disappointed? No, not at all. You know why? Because they're going to be seeing their Savior face to face. And at the end of the day, before facts and figures were debated, they understand that in the beginning, what? Yes. And so that, that is their key thing. Now, I'm just going to share one final perspective that I find to be orthodox and what some Christians um, are lining up with, and it's, it's fairly brand new. It's kind of like it answers the question of, is the earth like millions of years old and evolution is, what we, is why we see what we see and God is the one that orchestrated the evolution? Or is it a young earth like 6,000 years old with, with human beings just being around for 6,000 years and, and God actually creating a literal Adam and Eve? Which of the two is it? This final perspective goes, um, yes. And this is a guy who came over from India. His initial um, perspective was young earth, but as he got into science, he thought that he didn't feel like that could be lined up super easily. And he says this, his name is Dr. Joshua uh, Swamidas. He wrote this book, The Genealogical Adam and Eve. I'm just getting into this. Um, a lot of the people who are on the theistic evolutionist camp are kind of starting to side with him now. Dr. Hugh Ross is, is kind of wrote um, something on this. It's that he believes that this is a much more tenable perspective than even some of his findings. He says, Adam and Eve are our literal genealogical ancestors that were created in the garden alongside a world already far along in its evolutionary development. In other words, evolution is happening all around the garden, and Genesis 1 is helping us hone in on the accounting of Adam and Eve, God's special creation, the image bearers of God, and then it goes from there. It's, it's fascinating, it's, it's interesting, and I encourage you to jump into that and take a look at that. But as a Christian, one thing that you have to really land on is this. Which one of these do you believe? Which one of these do I believe? I think all of us, we, we should land on a conviction of what we think Scripture is saying, or the most likely reality of what we're seeing within Scripture and what Scripture is honestly saying, which is the supreme court of our truth. It's not like 
that, something that we're going to get to in the end. It's something that will dictate all truth. And there's nothing that's reality or true that's going to contradict God's truth if properly read. Well, where do you land on that? I want to encourage you to actually pursue that, to actually pursue figuring out what you believe on that as a Christian. Now, that, that all is for you if you're a Christian. A Christian who both ultimately says that before facts and figures were created, in the beginning God created. But what if you're not a Christian? And honestly, this has been one of those areas that has been keeping you outside. Like, you couldn't go fully in. You like the idea of Jesus, but you don't like the idea that it seems like the most smart people you know don't believe, in part because of science. What about you? I want to challenge you to simply open yourself up to the possibility that this is true. I want you to just open yourself up to the possibility of that. Because it's interesting. It was in the Reformation. It was right after the Reformation that all of a sudden modern science got its, its launch point from a group of people that were Christians. They were followers of Jesus, people who believed the Bible. And the reason that, they be, that modern science launches is because all of a sudden in the Reformation, God's word got put in the hands of people and they could actually read it. And when they actually read it, they weren't just dictated by the priest what it was saying. When they were actually reading it, they were seeing this is a God of order. This is a God of design and intentionality. And the more that they investigated the world, the more they understood that this is a God who is knowable and understandable and he wants us to know him because in the beginning God created you open yourself up to that, and I think that you're going to see the same truth that the early modern science, the modern science, the onset of modern science, why it became a thing. Because you're going to see something else that people are seeing today more and more, design and intentionality. And you're going to see like the people are seeing today, the further you get into science, the, the further you get from chaos or randomness, and the more you get into precision and order. If you're not a Christian and you open yourself up to in the beginning God created, you're going to see something that I think is phenomenal, which is wonder. Um, most of the people that I, um, that I read or I listen to videos from that are, that are atheists in part because of their scientific findings make a really compelling claim that says, look, you guys believe that you need to have a creator to appreciate all this. I don't. When I go into Yosemite National Park, when I walk through and I, and I, I study chemistry and I look at the, the cell and the, the intricacies of that, the fact that it came about randomly is that much more incredibly exciting to me how wonderful it is that this all happened by chance and I get to be lucky enough to be alive. I mean, it's like when I walk through the creation, when I walk through a national park, it's almost like I'm walking through like, like, a, like an art gallery of the beauty of, of creation itself, of nature. And that's why I'm a naturalist. To which I would say, exactly, exactly. Like when you go to a, a, an art gallery, one of the coolest things is you're walking through and going, somebody did this. And the cool thing is, is that you're like, you're looking at it, you're trying to figure out what was their inspiration, but that's the best thing about an art gallery. You can actually, if you do a little bit of studying, you can find out who did it. And on top of finding out who did it, you can figure out what was their inspiration, why, why is their style as it is, and what, what, what made them tick that did this. And if you're lucky, you can even meet the artist. What if I was able to convince you? That the very same thing that you're believing and feeling when you're walking and sit, walking through nature or studying science, and feeling like you're walking through an art gallery, that you actually are. And that the very person that coded your DNA, the very, for, very person who came up with photosynthesis and the central nervous system, who designed it all, is actually knowable. Better yet, he knows you. Better than that. He loves you. And scripture points out that he's not only the beginner, 
Jesus says that all things were created by Jesus for Jesus. And you know what Jesus' mission was? To bring us back to him. The creator who created everything knows and loves you and is giving you the opportunity to deal with the very thing that's distancing you from him, which is sin. You surrender your life to him, even if you don't have all the answers to that. Don't evaluate Christianity based on the things that Christians disagree on. Evaluate Christianity from the things that we do. And this is the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. And you can know that creator. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, make us curious. Make us explorers and passionate. God, allow us to be the type of people that are not afraid or burying our head from scientific findings, but exploring them, evaluating them, trying to see your fingerprints in them. Lord, I pray that that drives us not, not distant from our faith, but deeper into our faith, recognizing this extent and beauty and precision of what it is that you've called into order. And God, if you could do that, you could do anything, including in our lives. I pray that you help us as a people, as a church, as a tribe, that we're the type of people that lean in on intelligence because we know that comes from you. We lean in on truth because you are the author of truth. We lean in on wonder and love because we know there's things that even science is incapable of measuring that are perfectly explained by you. And we'll give you thanks for it. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. See you next week.